Um, you'll notice there are a lot of hard words in here, and I almost got Kyle to read it this morning. Uh, <laughs> instead, uh, I printed it out on big paper with, uh, with notes, so hopefully I'll get these, uh, these place names right. But I tell you what, I bet if I get them wrong, you're not going to argue with me, right? But first, let's pray and ask God's help. Oh, Father, make your word a swift word, passing from the ear to the heart, and the heart to the lip in conversation, that as the rain returns not empty, so neither may your word, but accomplish that which it is forgiven, given for. In the name of Jesus, amen. So this is Genesis chapter 14, uh, beginning at verse 1. Hear now the words of the Lord. In the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Arioch, king of Elasar, uh, Ketliomer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goim. These kings made war with Bera, king of Sodom, Beersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, Shemeber, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is, Zoar. And all these joined forces in the valley of Sidim, that is, the Salt Sea. Twelve years they had served Ketliomer, but in the thirteenth year they rebelled. In the fourteenth year, Ketliomer and the kings who were with him came and defeated the Rephaim in Ashtaroth Karnaim, in Zuzim in Ham, the Emim in Shaveh Kiriathaim, and the Horites in their hill country of Seir as far as Paran on the border of the wilderness. Then they turned back and came to En Mishpat, that is Kadesh, and defeated all the country of the Amalekites, and also the Amorites who were dwelling in Hazazon Tamar. Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adma, the king of Zeboim, the king of Bela, that is Zoar, went out, and they joined battle in the valley of Sidim, with Ketileomer, king of Elam, Tidal, king of Goim, Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Arioch, king of Elasar, four kings against five. Now the valley of Sidim was full of bitumen pits, and as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some fell into them, and the rest fled into the hill country. So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. All right, if you've checked out, check back in right here. For verse 12. <laughs> they also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom and his possessions, and went their way. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre the Amorite, brother of Eschol and of Aner. These were allies of Abram. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsman Lot with his possessions and the women and the people. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So Wednesday night, this last Wednesday, in our study of James, we talked about the nature of temptation and sin from James chapter 1, verses 12 through 15. And key is verse 14. We read, each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desires. Our own sinful desires, 
that is, our desires for those things which are contrary to what God wants for us, they will often try to lure us from God's design and God's desire for our lives, convincing us that we want what it has to offer, even though it is lying to us. This fight with temptation you fight with, and I fight it. It is common to every believer in Christ. In our text today, though, we are given an object lesson of what happens when we fail to stand firm in the face of temptation. So we think about the Minecraft field of lava that we just talked about with the kids, when we, when we fail to stay on the edge of the lava, but indeed cross into it. We see an object lesson here of what happens when we, uh, when we do that, when we fail to stand firm in the day of temptation. See, last week, Lot had decided to move away from the promised land, away from the source of blessing, Abram, and to move near Sodom. But in his moving near Sodom, he opened himself to great temptation, a temptation that he fell into because last week we saw him living near Sodom. Today we find him living in Sodom. Now, here's the thing. Lot knew that it was a terribly wicked place, and yet he moved there anyway. But this is how sin and temptation work, isn't it? Most of the time, the path along to danger is paved by what seems to be lesser, less serious transgressions, less serious, smaller, minor um, lapses of good judgment, right? And soon we find ourselves right in the middle of Minecraft lava, or in Lot's perspective, living in Sodom. You know, this morning, my overarching point is this. It's dangerous to flirt with sin. It's dangerous to flirt with sin. The Lord Jesus has freed us from the guilt and power of sin. And brothers and sisters in Christ, may we run hard from it. For the first time in the Bible, war is mentioned. Genesis 14 is the first place that war is mentioned. And it's the kind of war that plagued the age of the patriarchs, or, or what other people might call the Bronze Age. Some of the details are hard to follow here. I know all those strange names, it's hard to follow that. So let me, let me tell you what, what takes place. Well, there's this coalition of four kings from distant lands, right? And they had invaded uh, 14 years before these, this event, before this text. Um, they had invaded five city-states near the Dead Sea, the cities of Sodom, Gomorrah, Adma, Zeboim, and Zoar. So they invaded and they subjugated them. They basically made him pay protection money, right? It's like what the bully does on uh, the playground. Give me your lunch money or I'll beat you up, right? You give him your lunch money, you don't get beaten up. What happens if you stop paying lunch money? You get beaten up. That's what happens in our text. So in verse 13, excuse me, 13 years later, right, after those 12 years had passed, these five city-states decided, I think we're done paying our lunch money. Well, a year passed, and in year 14, Kedley Omer and his buddies, this coalition of four kings from way far away, said, all right, time to collect. And they come down, and they raid, and they pillage whole, whole huge areas, defeating some of the strongest people that, that we find in the area. The Rephaim, they were huge people. The Amalekites, those were bad dudes, and they, they take them out. Right? And then they wait for these five kings for the very end. It seems that they get close to the, uh, the five kings, and the five kings decide that the best idea is not to pay double, right? That would have been a better idea. Hey, here, take it all. Just leave us. They decide to join up in battle. 
And so they go up against these four kings, and they lose. And in their losing, in even their retreating, they continue to lose. Many of them fell into the bitumen pits or asphalt, pit, asphalt pits, these open pits with bubbling up asphalt that still exist in the area. What a terrible way to die. And so with the armies of these five city-states near the Dead Sea taken care of, the four invading armies, they come and they completely wipe out these cities. They plunder the five cities, the rebellious kings. Now let me be very clear here, this was awful, terrible warfare. This is not the kind of warfare that is governed by the Geneva Convention. Back in those days, you either died, horrible death, or you were enslaved. And so it seems that those who were able to walk were left alive and taken on a, a long march back to far distant lands where they would um, have a hard life, where these four kings were from. They took all their stuff. If they weren't going to get it voluntarily, this protection money, they would come and take it. The women would have been forced to become wives or worse for the soldiers in the army, and at best the men only had a short life of hard labor and short provisions to look for. It was a hard time. At the beginning of the Second World War, um, Japan invaded the Philippines. The Philippine Islands were part of a protectorate of America. It was American soil and territory. And um, American and Filipino troops were woefully unprepared, even though they had plenty of warning. Uh, and they fought a losing battle. Soon they were forced to surrender as they were isolated on the uh, Bataan Peninsula. When I say they were forced to surrender, we're talking about 70,000 troops. That's a lot of troops forced to surrender. They had to surrender because they were out of food. People were dying by the thousands of malaria. They had no medicine and no, um, no safe water to drink. And what became known as the Bataan Death March... These 70,000 troops were marched approximately 65 miles north in horrible conditions under horrible treatment. And because of this, 10,000 of them died. 10,000 out of 70,000 died. And that's kind of what was happening here. It'd be nice if many of them could survive until they got back up to the north, but if they didn't, that's okay. They just wouldn't have cared. But see, it gets worse because there's this wrinkle that we read in verses 11 through 12. So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. And they also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom and his possessions, and went their way. Do you remember who Lot is? Lot is the nephew of Abram. God had made Abram the the chosen vessel of blessing. Right? Not just for his family, but ultimately for all nations of the world. And here is his closest relative. The relative of the, of the chosen one through whom the Messiah would come. And he is in this death train heading north. Abram and Lot were super wealthy. Remember, they had separated last week, and Lot had chosen the the lesser option, the the worse option, to move away from Abram, to to leave the promised land, so that he might keep his provisions. What has happened to Lot? He's lost everything. His wife and his uh, daughters, soon to be married off or worse, 
if they survive the march north. And the question is, how did he get there? Well, let me tell you, incrementally, not overnight, but by degrees. You know on your, um, uh, your windshield wipers, you can turn it up, turn it down, and you know, it starts raining a little bit harder, and you click it up a notch, and, and then another notch, and then another notch, and, and soon it's going as fast as you can. Well, how did that start? Well, you started out with that first little notch. One Christmas soon after Christian and I got married, I, I, I got the, the best Christmas present I think I've ever gotten, a remote-controlled airplane. It was awesome. I haven't flown it in 10 years. It sits on top of my bookshelf at home. It looks real nice. My little nephew, Moses, who many of you have met, Moses McNutt, he was about four at the time, and y'all, he loved this thing just as much as I did, maybe more. But you know what? Being four years old, he wasn't allowed to touch it. And so he was told, use self-control hands. You know what self-control hands are? You have to grip them together. And look with your eyes, not with your hands. And so my, my plane was on the far side of the room, and Moses was on this side of the room. And he kept saying, Uncle Parker, I just love your plane. I just love it. Love it. And next thing you know, his self-control hands are all over my airplane. How did Moses get from one side to the other? It was not all at once, was it? It was step by step. You know, this is how sin and temptation work, isn't it? Satan is happy to play the long game. He's happy to play the long game. He's happy for little bit by little bit. You know, some poison works better when it's taken over a long period of time. In small doses, you can't taste too much. And that's what it looks like to do what Lot has done. Little bit by little bit. He didn't start in Sodom. He, start, he started away from Sodom. Now, let me give you a spoiler alert. What's going to happen in this text? You know where he's going back? Sodom. We're going to see Lot in Sodom again. It's going to be real bad then. Genesis 12, excuse me, 13, verses 12 through 13. Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. This is the only time in all of Scripture this phrase, wicked, great sinners, shows up. It seems that it was super duper bad. And you know who knew that? Lot. But we've all, let's, I mean, you know, we can, it's easy to speak bad about other people, isn't it? But we've all been in Lot's shoes. We've all been in Lot's shoes. We know where the line is that demarks sin, and we get as close as we can to that line, thinking that it's safe to get close to flirt. We won't go over it. I don't know about you, but the times that I've done that in my life, I rarely, if ever, stay on the right side of that line. Because, see, in order to be right up against the line, where are you looking? You're looking over the line. It already has your heart. It already has your affections. You know, I think the, the hardest place to, for this battle, hopefully if we saw a big lava pit, we'd stay away from it. Big and obvious. But the hardest area to fight this is in our mind, isn't it? I'll just think about it just for a second. And then, a, and then a second becomes, soon it's, it, it is consuming you. 
we talked Wednesday night about how temptation works and mind affection will. You know, it, it, you get in your mind, you start thinking about it, you decide if you want it or not. Then your affections, your desires, your emotions take over and, and they get set on it. And when we want something, it ultimately becomes something that we feel entitled to. And if we don't get what we're entitled to, then we get really upset. And then we have to have it. And it feels that that pull feels so hard and, and so firm and so powerful that soon our wills kick in and we just take it. Let's stop and think about Jesus, about what it cost him to save us from the very things that we like to flirt with. The things that we tolerate and contemplate are the very things for which he gave his life up for you. Did you know that Jesus loves you? That he wants what is best for you? We know that Jesus loves you because he died on the cross for you. For the very things that we struggle with when we flirt with them, he has, he has died to break the power and the guilt of those things over us. What did it cost him? It cost him his life. In 2019, President Trump became the first U.S. president to cross the border into North Korea. I don't know if that's good or bad. I don't really know. But the, it, he was the first sitting president to ever do this. Uh, I've never been to the DMZ and never plan on going there. Uh, the demilitarized zone, this area, this no man's land that exists between the South and North Korea. And in, this, in the DMZ, there's a special, this one special place for meeting between the North and the South. And there's actually a big room and there's a line painted down the middle of a table so everybody knows which side of the border they're on. Well, outside there's this very low ledge, kind of a curb, that goes right down the line between the north and the south. And, if, and you know where you are. And Trump took a very bold step and he actually walked into North Korea at the um, invitation of the evil Korean dictator and, uh, and he was the first president to ever do so. He knew when, where he was from one minute to the next. He knew exactly where he was. We often think that the line between not sinning and sinning is that clear. But let me tell you something. A lot of times I'll think, oh, I'm still on the right side. And actually the line's 20 feet back that way. Because I've convinced myself that X, Y, and Z isn't that bad. Do you, do you know this struggle? Surely you do. It would be nice often if it was that clear. This is what happened with Lot. He and his family first lived near Sodom, but in verse 14 we find him living in Sodom. We don't know how long he lived near Sodom, but it seems to, for him to have been long enough for him to know how bad uh, it was there in, in Sodom. In fact, 2 Peter chapter 2 tells us that Lot was distressed because the wicked behavior of the men of Sodom. He was distressed, but where was he? In Sodom. I'm sure he had a lot of excuses. I'm so good with excuses. Aren't you? I'm so good at excusing my own thoughts and behaviors, motives, actions. We're, man, we, perhaps he was tired of the long commute into Walmart, right? There wasn't one outside of Sodom. Only one in the whole area was right in Sodom. He was tired of that commute, right? Or maybe it was a, the, the traffic on Friday afternoons, right? Or perhaps it was good for business. He needed to open up a, another stall in the local bazaar. It's amazing the kind of excuses. I'm just like Lot. I can make those kind of excuses too. But you know, there's always a cost to sin. And here in this text, it was that they were in Sodom when it got sacked. 
If they hadn't done it, they probably wouldn't have been there. If they hadn't have moved in there, they probably wouldn't have gotten captured by these kings. But there's a longer-term cost to Lot's sin as well. In fact, we learn in Genesis 19 that Lot's daughters married men from Sodom. You think about that. Lot knew, according to 2 Peter 2, the problems in Sodom. And he took his family into it. And his daughters married the men of Sodom. When we think about cost, though, of course we have to think about Jesus. Think about the, what it costs our Savior, right, for our salvation. His life on the cross. His precious blood had to be spilled. The wrath of God endured. The mocking received and the dying done. But then the rising and the ascension back into heaven. And this is the good news, that forgiveness is available to all those... Um, Uh, line towers like you and me. To all those who have flirted with sin time and time again, Christ says, come to me all you who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Romans 8.1 says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. 1 John 1 says, if we confess our sins, that he is faithful and just to forgive us for our sins and to cleanse us from that filthiness that comes from sin, all unrighteousness, right? This is the scandal of the gospel. That God took upon himself the moral cost of our sin, God's wrath and judgment, so that we who were sinners and enemies of God might be called the brothers of Jesus and the sons of the living God. That's the cost that was paid for you and for me. I'm not in business, and, uh, and our treasurer would tell you that my business acumen is, is not very good. Although I was a business minor, much to the, uh, the uh, well, my business teachers wouldn't have appreciated my skills now, but there's this something called cost, uh, what, um, cost analysis, that's not the right word, um, something like that, right? What is it? Yeah, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> you count the cost on the front end, right? You count the cost. As we think about the cost of our sin and what it cost our Savior, what do you think of that kind of accounting when it's we're flirting with sin. Well, there's a turning point in verse 13. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eschol and Aner. These were allies of Abram. News came to Abram of what had happened to his neighbor, his kinsman. In fact, the, the text literally says his brother. That's how close they were. Now, let me ask you something. What would you have done? What would you have done? I'm thankful that Abram did what, what, what he did. But don't you know your heart and mind would have been a little tempted to not do what Abram had done? Well, he deserves it, right? That's called justice. That's his own fault. Lot deserved, Lot deserved every bit of what he was getting. He had it coming. What about that large coalition of kings that just put the beat down on the entire region? Do I really want to take them on? But Abram had God on his side. See, these forces, as they headed north, these, some of these places where they're talking about, when it says he pursued them as far as Dan, Dan is on the edge of the promised land, which means they were in the promised land. They were in his land that God had given to him. And God was real clear, this is your land and your seeds, and I'm going to bless everybody who blesses you, and I'm going to curse anybody who curses you. So Abram took 318, that's not very many, 318 of his men and some of his allies, and they went and pursued these five arm, four armies that had just 
completely plundered and pillaged the whole area, going in the name of the Lord. And they didn't just go around the corner. They went 120 miles. That's how far it is from Mamre up to Dan. And the text actually says they kept on going, pursuing them. And in a sneak attack at night, dividing his forces, he's able to rescue not just Lot, but all those who had been taken captive, everybody who had been put on that death march. You know, a few weeks ago, we saw uh, Abram walking by sight as he headed down to Egypt. He's not walking by sight here. He's walking by faith. He is putting his life in God's hands. He is trusting the promises of God. And he goes blessed by God, and he frees all those who had been captured. But hero, the hero here of this text, sure, Abram has a good moment here. But he points us to a greater hero and a greater rescuer. See, Abram could save Lot from the consequences of his bad choices. But apparently he couldn't deal with Lot's heart. Because Lot is going to go right back into Sodom and let his daughters be married off into Sodom's families. He couldn't change his heart and he couldn't deal with the moral debt that stood between him and God because of his sin. Abram couldn't do that. But the one who came from Abram could. His seed, his ancestor, our Savior, Jesus. See, Lot's problem, Abram's problem, our problem is that each and every one of us has a moral debt to God because of our sin. Our inherited guilt from Adam and Eve and then the guilt that we owe because of our actual sins that we have committed. And just like Abram left his home, pursued Lot, so God left the heavens, came to earth, born of a virgin, to pursue us. To pursue us, we who had been taken captive by the guilt and power of sin, the ones who were under the power of the prince of the air. And when we were in the domain of darkness, he pursued us. And in pursuing us, he lived the perfect life that you and I could not. He died in our place upon the cross in order to pay for our sins. Listen to how Colossians 2 puts it. And you who are dead in your trespasses and the, un- and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside by nailing it to the cross. Do you remember what they did on the cross? They put something above Jesus' head. Do you remember this? And it said, this is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Do you know why they put it up there? It's because it was the charge against him. At the top of every cross, there had to be a plaque, a piece of paper with the charge against the person being crucified. And Colossians 2.14 says that that God has taken the record of your debt and of my debt, the record of our sins, and that has been nailed to the cross. And Jesus paid for that. He died in our place. And then three days later, he rose again from the dead. And now those who trust in Christ receive redemption, the forgiveness of sins, and are given the right to share in the inheritance of the saints in light, to live forever in heaven when Christ comes again from his far country. See, here's the thing, that we have been destined for a greater promised land. Not the promised land of the physical Canaan, 
for the promised land of heaven, the new heavens and the new earth. And just as Abram went north with the promises of God tucked in his back pocket, so too we can go out these doors assured that the promises of God are yes and amen in Christ Jesus now and forevermore. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that all the promises are yes and amen in Christ. And that Abram was looking forward to the day, looking to an eternal city, not made with hands. That he was looking to um, his seed, to our Savior. We thank you that we have forgiveness in Christ. We pray these things in our Savior's name. Amen. Our final hymn is 349, if you'll take your hymnals, and we'll sing verses 1, 2, and 5. Let's stand and sing to the glory of God.